Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 6. Sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Hear then the reading of God's holy and inspired word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of His promise, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray that He might bless it to us this morning. Father, indeed, strengthen, comfort, and build us up in holiness by the preaching of Your Word this morning. Give us hearts of faith to receive it gladly. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. In some ways, we do come finally to the end of the digression which the author of this wonderful sermon, this letter to the Hebrews that takes the form of a sermon, uh, introduced in chapter 5, verse 11. If you remember, in 5.10, he just introduces this idea of Jesus Christ as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as he introduced that, then he knew, he's a very skillful writer, he didn't just do an ADHD thing and you know, kind of jump onto a new train of thought for no reason. But he knew that his audience needed some stern words, some encouragement, some warning before he actually jumped into the meat of this topic of Christ and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so he goes into a digression about not being sluggish. Uh, we noted how that word is used in that first section when he talks to them as if they're acting like children who can't handle solid food and just need milk. He said, don't be sluggish of hearing. He then warned them about falling away from Christ because there is judgment to come for those who take up all of the blessings of the Lord and yet then turn their backs on Him and deny Christ. Finally, he encouraged them to imitate their earlier works, as well as the works God had produced in the lives of the saints who had gone before practicing patient faith. Not being sluggish, but imitators of those who inherit the promises. And as he characteristically does throughout this letter, there's some, some very smooth, skillful transitions from one section to another. And as he told them last week to be imitators of those 
who through patience inherited the promises. He smoothly transitions into this section we read this morning. Because Abraham is an example of those who through patience inherit the promises. In many ways, Abraham in Scripture in the New Testament is the foremost man of faith, is he not? Our author is not alone in turning to Abraham. He's used multiple times by Paul in his letters to the churches in different places. He is used by James as an example as well. And here in Hebrews, we see once more the example of Abraham. And yet as we come into this last section before we return to the topic of the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, there's a a slight shift in emphasis. The first, the preceding sections that we've just kind of rehearsed, that we've looked at in these past weeks and months, in some ways have an emphasis on how we respond to God's Word. There's an emphasis on how we respond. There's a, a warning not to respond like children. There's a warning not to respond by turning away from God. There is an encouragement positively to respond in the same way you responded at the beginning. It's not as if the uh, primary and foundational work of God has not been present in those sections. It is there. But here, in a more emphatic way, we see a focus on the work of God, which is the foundation of our response to Him. Here, the author turns and he focuses on the trustworthiness of the Word of God. He focuses on the fact, yes, we are to imitate Abraham's faith, but we are to do so because of the solid nature of the foundation of Abraham's faith, which is the unbreakable, unchangeable, steadfast and firm foundation of God's promise to him. And God's promise to him made even more certain for his sake by the oath which God swore by himself that's the focus of this passage the faithfulness of god which is even confirmed to us by oath and as we come to the end of this passage just a little preview again skillfully he takes one subject and smoothly transitions into where he's going he brings up once more the high priesthood of christ according to the order of melchizedek and some of what he does here lays the foundation for that because God swore an oath to Christ that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, it is because God's word to you is certain that you are to trust God just as Abraham did. Because the promises to you are just as firm No, they are more so. They are more firm when we have seen their fulfillment in Christ than the word which God spoke to Abraham. God has bound Himself by an oath. He has kept His promises by sending His Son. You indeed can trust in Him to the very end. So walk in faith. Walk patiently because God's word is sure. That is what we learn in this passage. Walk by faith because God's Word is a firm foundation for you to trust in. As the author 
tells us and teaches us this wonderful truth of Scripture. He does so by means of a human analogy. He does so first, we'll look at this human analogy which he brings up, and he, he speaks here with a lot of language of the courtroom, of human courtrooms, and we're sort of familiar with that, right? If you watch the TV shows, I don't know what they are anymore. I remember when I was young, my parents would sometimes watch Law and Order. There's courtroom shows we watch, and we know that you, when you bear testimony, have to swear an oath, right? And that's the way that our author kind of starts out here. First, he begins with this human analogy of swearing oaths, and there is implied in verse 13 here the idea that when you swear an oath, you swear by someone greater than yourself. And he's talking about this ancient practice uh, that they would always swear by someone greater. How do I trust you? Well, I swear by, and uh, they would usually invoke their deities, peoples of many different cultures, not just the Old Testament Jews. They'd say something like, I swear I'm telling the truth and Thor smite me with his hammer if I am lying. And obviously God's people wouldn't swear, or at least they shouldn't have. Uh, They didn't always do what they were supposed to. When you read the Old Testament, you quickly find that out. But God's people were supposed to swear only by Yahweh, the God who delivered them. And not just because He was their God, but because He was the only true God. They were not to swear by false idols because Thor doesn't exist and his hammer can't smite you. But Yahweh is the just God who will make things right in the end. He also notes as he talks about this human tradition of swearing that in the ancient world in their courtrooms, when someone swore an oath, you kind of took them at their word at that point. You sort of trusted God would do what they invoked Him to do. You're basically saying, may God curse me if I'm lying here. And that's why we trust you, because we would say, well, we can't maybe tell whether you're telling a lie or not, but God knows, and He'll hold you accountable. You've just asked Him to. And so he says that when someone swears by something, an oath is final for confirmation. So we believe them. Obviously, people, you know, they abuse this, they lie under oath, but we can't always see through their lies. The idea of an oath is that it kind of ends the dispute because God will take care of it if they are lying. And so how does this human analogy apply to God's Word? The human courtroom is only an illustration, but it does serve to show us the unquestionable testimony of God Himself and that it is a sure foundation for our faith. We've seen the human analogy of swearing an oath to confirm something is true. And our author says this applies to us and it applies primarily to Abraham. The passage he has in view here is God swearing by Himself is his oath made to Abraham in Genesis 22. We read that passage earlier. Do you kids remember that story in the Old Testament? What did God tell Abraham to do that seems like he couldn't do it? He said, sacrifice your one and only son Isaac. And as Abraham went to sacrifice him, we we know the story is that God provided a substitute, a wonderful picture of the gospel that the one who was about to be sacrificed instead they had a substitute be sacrificed in his place but God waited until the last minute because he was testing Abraham 
to see if he trusted in God's word. And so Abraham, as it were, had the knife raised ready to slay the sacrificial victim when God stopped him and would not let him do that. And after that, God swore this oath and he confirmed it doubly to Abraham because he swore by himself. He not only had the promise which Abraham had received chapters before, but now he had the promise with an oath God swearing by himself. And the emphasis here is on the certainty of his promise. It's certain because he swears an oath. His promise is also certain because God swears by himself. And there's no one higher to swear by. God can't say, oh, well, somebody else hold me accountable. There is no one higher than God. And so the highest oath you can take is to swear by God. That's what we do in our courtrooms, or at least used to. Do you put your hand on the Bible and swear before God that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? There is no one else who could hold God to account except His own perfect character, which as we see even in this passage, God cannot violate. He cannot do otherwise than who He is. All of His actions are a perfect reflection of His perfect character we see it by the emphasis on this word and it's mirrored from genesis 22 where he says surely i will bless you it's a an accurate translation capturing what's awkward in english but in in hebrew they'd repeat a word a verb he'd say blessing you i will bless you and that's how they would say that something was certain and sure and here god again makes his word certain to Abraham because he's really just repeating what he's told him before. The promise is given if you turn back to Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 as as Abraham walks and God repeatedly tells him, I'm making my covenant with you. You are my people and I will make you into a great nation and I will make kings to come from you and I will give you this land and I will make you prosperous. God says, I confirm that to you once more and i do it with this oath just as he would continue to give this promise to isaac and to jacob his offspring and so we see that god's word to abraham was certain god's word to us is certain as well god wants us to know that we can trust his word just as much as abraham could And we see that in the response of Abraham, which we're to imitate. We see God's promises to Abraham, but we see Abraham's response. What does he do? He waits patiently. Think about what Abraham went through in the Old Testament. God had given him these promises. I'm going to do all of these things for you. And it's not happening. (laughs) What did he have at the end of his life even as he waited patiently? I'm going to multiply you into the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore. I'm going to give you this land. And in you, I'm going to bless everyone in this world. And out of all of those great and magnificent promises, when he came to the end of his life, what did Abraham have? He had one child of promise. They had the the Ishmael thing, but God said, no, it's through Isaac. And so... 
We're going to make you like the stars of heaven, and yet right now you're one. You have one son. The very seeds of fulfillment of what God would do. Yet Abraham was patient. Abraham walked by faith and not by sight. He is patient and takes God at His word and waits for it to be fulfilled. But even more, in the context of Genesis 22, which is clearly referenced here, Abraham obeys, we might even say, illogically. Abraham obeys illogically because he trusts so much in God. He does what doesn't make sense to him. What doesn't make sense according to the wisdom of this world. Because we just talked about the fact that all he had of the fulfillment of these promises was his one son. And in Genesis 22, what does God ask him to do? He asks him to give up the only thing that is going for the fulfillment of these promises. It seems like according to all earthly calculations, if Isaac's gone, the promise is done and it's over. This can't work out for good, right? That's what Abraham sees if he looks at what's around him. And yet, in patience and in faith, he says, I'm going to trust what God says. I'm going to obey because I trust that God will fulfill His Word. Later in Hebrews, as Abraham is brought up again, he says, this God is so powerful that He could even raise Isaac from the dead. And so I don't have anything to worry about. As foolish as it may look to this world, as foolish as it may look to me, I trust in God. And so what happens to Abraham? He receives the promise. He receives Isaac back as if from the dead because he went to the very brink of it. In all of the promises God made to Abraham, we watch the Old Testament and we see them being fulfilled at least in an initial sense. As Abraham is multiplied into a great nation, the children of Israel, as they are delivered out of Egypt and brought into the promised land, as they are given victory under David. And yet, today, brothers and sisters, we have seen greater fulfillment because we know these promises ultimately are about Jesus Christ who came from the seed of Abraham, who is the blessing to all nations, who does not inherit a small part of land in the Middle East, but who inherits the entire created world. And all of those who have Abraham's faith, Galatians tells us, are children of Abraham who number more than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. So Abraham received the promises. Our text said he did that as an example to us. Remember, we are to imitate Abraham. We are to walk with patience in this life. And we know that we may not even see the fulfillment of God's promises here and now. It may not look in our earthly life like God is true. Like He is watching over us. Like He is protecting us. But we trust in Him just as Abraham did. We trust that His promises, if they are not fulfilled in this life, certainly are in the next. 
And like Abraham, we have a firm foundation for our trust. The last verses of this passage directly address us. God desired to show, not only to show, but to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose and guaranteed it with an oath. He gave Abraham so many reassurances. Abraham is this great man of faith, and yet when you go back and read Genesis, how many times did he doubt? How many times did he go to God and say, I know you promised and I believe you, but it doesn't look like it's working out how you said right now. And yet what did God do over and over again? He reaffirmed his word to Abraham. He could have said, I said it, you better believe me. I'm not going to say it again. He had every right to do so. And yet what did God do? He stooped down to Abraham's level and said, look, I know this is difficult, but I will tell you once again, I will remind you as many times as is needed. I will even swear an oath. It's going to be as I said it would be. My purpose will not change. And that is what He does with us as well. That is what God does for us as well. We have God's unchangeable promise. And he says here, it is doubly sure by two unchangeable things by which it is impossible for God to lie. God gives us His promise. And in one sense, that's enough. There is no oath needed. Why? Because God is truth. As he says here, it's impossible for God to lie. It's taught in the Old Testament in verses like Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and He will not do it? Or has He spoken and He will not fulfill it? Comes into the New Testament in Hebrews or in Titus 1.2. In our hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. It's doubly sure, though, because we are weak like Abraham. Because we have trouble being patient. Because we want it now. Because when we don't get it now, we are prone to doubt. And to say, is this really true? Will God do what He said? For our sake, God made His oath. For our sake, God swore by Himself to reassure us. And so we can indeed trust in Him. It speaks here of those who have fled to Him for refuge. He is indeed a sure shelter in the time of the storm. All who flee to Him might have, because His Word is sure, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. He's told us. He's promised. He's sworn an oath. And He says, everyone who comes to Me for refuge, I will strengthen and encourage you. He pictures the steadfastness of His Word here as an anchor. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's, that's the tabernacle that only the high priest could go into only one time a year. 
And he says, our hope in Jesus Christ has entered there. And that is where our anchor lies. What a beautiful picture for him to use as he encourages us. Do you ever feel like you're adrift in this world? Do you ever feel like the waves are tossing you and just as you think you're treading and got your head above water, one comes from the other direction and you get a nose full of salt water? That is in many ways what this world is like. And we feel like we will drift away, drift off and be lost. And yet this hope, which is certain, is a steadfast anchor. In one sense that we can't even see. You don't see a ship's anchor when you drop it overboard. But it holds the ship still. Even in the waves of the storm as they pound it, the ship will not drift away and be lost because the anchor holds it fast. And our hope is in heaven where Christ is. Not in the earthly tabernacle. Not in that type, in that shadow, in that temporary picture of the most heavenly place behind the curtain. But in the true heavenly tabernacle in the presence of God Almighty of which that earthly uh, tabernacle was made only as a, as a replica. Christ is there, the high priest. And that is why we have a sure, and a sure foundation, a sure hope that will not let us go. That is why we hold fast. That is what God has given to us. And in some ways, brothers and sisters, we have even greater reason to trust than Abraham did. Because Abraham was looking forward to what God would do in Jesus Christ, but hadn't done yet. We can actually look back and see that Christ has accomplished our salvation for us. And we're waiting for the fullness of that to be given to us. We're waiting to be delivered finally from sin and death and bodies that ache and break apart from, as Paul says, the outer man who wastes away, from joints that wear out and need to be replaced, from bodies that get sick with infections and finally pass away. But we know that what God has promised is true. Because Jesus Christ went into that most holy place as our forerunner. And we go there with Him. And what He has will one day completely be given to us. He, even His glorified body raised from the dead, we will have bodies of glory as well. So in one sense, we wait like Abraham did. In one sense, we walk patiently by faith. And yet in a greater sense than Abraham, we can look back on the fulfillment of what God has done in accomplishing that salvation. And Christ in His body entering into the presence of God for us. And we in that sense have a greater hope than Abraham did. Because Abraham looked only at Isaac. But in clarity, we can look at Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us then hold fast in patience to this hope which God has given to us and sworn to us. Amen. Let's pray.